everyone's so tapped out on the fear response, the walls go up instantly and people don't want to talk. Mm -hmm. I would just ask the question, be curious with your customers. How would you have identified this going on within your environment? How would you guys defend against this? Or if they got in, how would you identify it faster? Or would you be able to identify it? Or would you like to talk about that? And what are they doing? And how could you learn from that lesson? Hey everybody, and welcome to the Incident Report presented by Quest Technology Management. I'm Paul Burke, Director of Technology Communications. Every week, I'm joined by VP of Sales and Partnerships, Adam Burke. The Incident Report brings you conversations with thought leaders, business innovators, and channel mavericks to help you stay productive and agile in a changing technology landscape. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Incident Report. I'm your host, Paul Burke. Well, I'm half of your hosts. Over there, across from me, Adam Burke. Adam, how are you doing? Good, Paul. Excited to be here. As always, it is the first incident report of the month of September. And, you know, I think it's going to be a doozy. Excited to be here. I'm excited to be inside because it is so hot outside. It's 114 here. I know everybody loves to talk about weather. So there you go. That's my skilled small talk segment. Nice intro, 114 degrees in the Northern California region. Hopefully everyone's staying inside, staying safe. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's amateur hour for those of us who live in the Phoenix Valley, but you know, it's cute. It's cute that you guys are getting a little spun up about a uh, triple digit day. You're like, oh, that's adorable. Look at them with their 114 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cute. How was your weekend? Good weekend? It was good. It was good. Spent some time on the soccer field and down in the Phoenix area, there's a huge complex called Reach 11. And one of the coolest things I've ever seen was there are probably about 25 soccer fields. They had an entire wireless mesh across the entire complex with these cameras that were up on these massive tripods recording every single game of the tournament. So all the kids out there that were playing, kind of a cool mix of sports and tech, they were able to record the games, send them to the parents. You can watch, you know, watch the plays back. Maybe a little excessive for, you know, the under six and under eight-year-olds. Maybe wow. a little excessive, a little yeah. excessive, but it's Scottsdale. It's there. It's Phoenix. You know, people take their sports and their kids' athletics pretty seriously around here. And funding does not seem to be an issue either. It's a little bubble. Is that a field for the public? I believe it was Phoenix Parks and Rec Department, but they got some taxpayers throwing out some cash, someone, but it was a, it was a Phoenix Rising tournament and they recorded every single game and it was really cool they had these tripods and little wireless cameras up there with a panoramic view and you could see it tracking on the gameplay and everything like that i remember when we were playing high school football i thought that was the coolest thing ever you know when they actually got some camera folks to to track the varsity football games you got to watch that back on on tape now you're getting that at <laughs> at peewee and junior super level so i remember being excited when we would go play a football game with lights and we were like, ooh, this school can afford lights. What an opportunity for us. It's come a long way. It has, yeah. It's I think Friday night lights, Saturday afternoon sun is just not quite as you know, as catchy as Friday night lights. And definitely at our <laughs> glorious institution. Shout out to Casa Roble. I think they got lights now. They went big time, Adam. They got lights. Yeah, all weather track too. The Orangeville, Orangeville is getting pretty uppity. Well, I, I think Verizon threw them a ton of cash and they're like, hey, let us build a tower. And they're like, okay. Oh, do we let them store some digital waste material in the back 40 or something? I think that's the trade-off. All right, well. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. You might be wondering, hey, what happens at the incident report? And that's a great question. We talk about the stories in the channel that we think you need to know. And you might be like, well, this does not sound like stories in the channel. And we are getting to those 
right now. And look at this transition. I'm very excited about this transition. Adam, so you mentioned the soccer was, it was youth soccer, correct? It was youth soccer. I think it was under 16 league all the way up through high school. Yep. Adam, you know what can also affect youth and the older youth is student loan breaches. And that's where we turn, Adam. Threatpost.com. Uh, student loan breach exposes 2.5 million records. 2.5 million records were affected in a breach that could spell more trouble down the line. Ed Financial and the Oklahoma Student Loan Authority are notifying over 2.5 million loanees that their personal data was exposed in a data breach. By August 17th, the investigation determined that personal user information was accessed by an unauthorized party. That exposed information included names, home addresses, email addresses, phone numbers, and social security numbers for a total of 2.5 million student loan account holders, user financial information was not exposed. Yeah, I mean, financial institutions can detect, usually can detect fraud and, you know, you can lock down accounts and things like that. But when you lose personally identifiable information, such as social security numbers, addresses, you know, birthdays, all that kind of stuff that necessarily home addresses that don't necessarily need to be out there, people can use that for identity theft or creating false accounts or, you know, setting up false loans or doing all sorts of things. A lot of deep fakes coming out. This was a treasure trove of information and also student loan, you know, student loan account information. That's, those are people who are just maybe either taking a break from the labor force or about to be entering the labor force. I was, I was reading down through the article too. It pinpoints the date of the breach around July 21st, but it also says that sometime between June 1st mm -hmm. and July 22nd, you know, the breach happened and then it didn't necessarily get discovered. This is also interesting until August 17th. There was a pretty substantial amount of time when organization or individual could have been in the environment watching and and basically extracting personally identifiable information for these different users, which is a, it's a big deal. That's why we're constantly saying and trying to help clients to contain or identify an incident, helping to notify and remediate. Also, this information is on the dark web. It is out there. It's brokered as a commodity. The people who probably extracted this are not the people who are going to manipulate it in their favor. This is just information. And I don't know, it was 10 or 12 years ago, information is the new oil kind of stuff on Barron's Magazine or whatever. This is a commodity. This is going to be resold on the dark web, which is a bummer. And what's also upsetting is this data can be used for scammers to send out phishing emails to acquire even more data. And with Biden's administration just for giving $10,000 in student loans, bad actors can masquerade as that organization and potentially steal and fish information from more users. Yeah, I mean, that, that program is a known program, regardless of your opinion on doing that in the middle of record inflation. That kind of decision is going to basically, it paints a target on people's, on people's back as far as a spear phishing campaign. Tailored messaging to them to exploit them we saw a lot of this during, you know, during COVID when people were getting huge fraud business loan and activities for the COVID relief plans and things like that around the pandemic era. This is just another, you know, people go for where the money is. And right now the feds are printing out some serious money for student loan for folks who, who leverage student loans. Adam, if you're a partner and you kind of come across a story like this or something similar, how, how would you recommend like using this when you're reaching out to clients? Like, how would you position this? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot. I'm just kind of curious because this happens and it's such a big story that it's like, how would you kind of leverage this story for partners in the channel to, to yeah. use it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would, you know, everyone's kind of, I think, numb to the whole fear, uncertainty, and doubt, like scaring people into making a decision. That's, everyone knows it's a threat. Everyone knows that there are bad actors out there. That's been beaten to death. I don't think you're going to scare anyone into making a decision. But a good question to ask would be, hey, check out that date range on the potential breach versus the actual discovery versus the actual notification. Oh, great point. You know, how, you know, I would just ask the question, be curious with your customers. How would you have identified, you know, this going on within your environment? Would you have been able to, you know, do you have policies in place? Do you have, you know, least privileged access control in place? Do you have multi-factor? Do you have a, do you have a web-based portal that, that can access any any actual databases or SQL environments in your backend? I would be curious, hey, check out how these guys, you know, it's a practice. It's a, it's, hey, look at, you know, kind of back to the soccer analogy we were just talking about earlier. Hey, let's watch some game tape. This doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be your game tape to learn from it. Hey, look at, look right here. This person got hit. They had a web portal going on. They're not quite sure how this person got credentials. How would you guys, you know, Mr. Customer, how would you guys defend against this or if they got in, how would you identify it faster? Or would you be able to identify it? Or would you like to talk about that? The fear stuff, I think is, I mean, it's, people are always going to pitch the fear stuff, which is, that's okay. But I treat it like, treat it like game tape. This is a great summary of, you know, someone else out there in, in the field of play trying to do what they do, what they do, you know, operate their business, coordinate loans for students. And what are they doing? And how could you learn from, how could you learn from that lesson? I love that. That's so smart. Approach it from a curiosity mindset instead of a fear-based mindset because we're so burnt out on fear. I think so. everyone's so tapped out on the fear response. The walls go up instantly and people don't want to talk. Mm -hmm. But if you get them talking about, you know, other people's experience and, hey, you know, let's learn from that. How would you address this? It's a little, it's a little less threatening, at least. I know we've, we've advised leadership at, you know, clients and partners, hey, Talk to your people, talk to your IT folks, ask them, hey, could we have seen this or could we have identified this or do we have a similar, do we have a similar web portal that touches personally identifiable information for our clients that how would we address this? And then stop talking and let the IT folks come back to you and give you their feedback is like, no, no jerk. I've been asking for budget for two years and you're too cheap to, to pay for it. I mean, not that IT person would ever say that to a CEO, but they might want to ask for that feedback from the IT staff. I think you mentioned something really important. Stop talking. Stop talking and really listen to what they're saying. That's a great point because I think sometimes we like talk too much. I know I'm guilty of it and just listening sometimes is the most important thing. Yeah, I that's that's a big big fault I have. I hop on partner calls or customer calls and if I'm talking for more than 5 or 10 minutes, I got to check myself, shut up and listen to what they're trying to do. Now, having said that, Adam, let's talk some more. Absolutely. Um, up next, channelfutures.com, flexibility as a service, how partners can help meet today's workforce needs. So custom operational text flexibility meets partners' business goals and employees' demand for flexibility. When you call it remote work, work from home, work from anywhere, or hybrid work, the common denominator throughout today's workforce is the demand for flexibility. You know what? So I will say this, Adam. As I've read so many articles for this podcast, I'm realizing the most valuable thing I can do is skip the first sentence because it's usually the most inconsequential and doesn't get to anything super important. They're burying the lead, Paul. They are burying the lead. All right. So let's get to the lead. 
Uh, recent research from Citrix found that 63% of business leaders surveyed said that offering employees flexibility is becoming a key determinant in the job market. However, employers are struggling to deliver. Nearly 65% of employer respondents said that employees now expect a higher degree of flexibility than they can accommodate from a business perspective. There is a clear understanding that flexibility can mitigate the risk of losing talent, opportunity, and revenue. Yeah, I mean, it's right right now in the labor force, you know, talent can ask for certain things. And we just got back from Labor Day weekend. So yay, labor. But we're back and in, moving into an economy where you're seeing folks like Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan is saying to his people in the banking industry, hey, this has been fun. It's been great. Get your ass back in the office. And because, you know, to him in the banking industry, basically a bank is an organization with a lot of money and they compete against other organizations that have a lot of money. And how are you actually going to compete? A big way for organizations to compete in the banking world is culture, right? Is, hey, we understand this type of business or we've been around this long or those types of things. So in organizations that are, you know, the financial services industry, commodity-based services, things that the only thing that really differentiates you is, hey, this culture of doing business is what I prefer versus this. I think they can demand their people operate at least a hybrid model, two to three days from an office. I think Apple's starting to do that. A lot of financial services are starting to do that. But also at the same time, I don't think software engineers or folks like that that are you know helping to ship and write code, I'm not sure they're ever going to go back to a nine to five office environment. I mean, there's mm -hmm. that's not a commodity job necessarily. They're working on specific projects and sitting in a car commuting to work or on a, on a subway isn't necessarily productive for a software engineer. So I think it's going to, it's going to be different for different organizations, but it is a way to compete for talent for sure. We're hiring people right now. The nice thing for us, you know, when the pandemic hit was we had already, we had already enabled a remote workforce. We had kind of invested in that platform the years prior to support engineers all over the country. That wasn't a, that wasn't a new move for us, for folks that was, they're still competing for that talent. Okay, Adam, I'm going to admit something. Just between you and me, I need to tell you something. We're on a podcast. Well, okay, so everybody listening. So the thousands of people listening are going to know this too. I have heard James Diamond mention so Jamie, much on podcast. Ja Jamie Diamond. Okay, Jamie Diamond. Okay. JD. JD. I call him J when he calls me, I call him JD. What's up, JD? Okay, okay. When you and JD are talking, Adam, I've yep. heard of him mentioned on a podcast so often. I have always thought, and I don't know if anybody else out there listening has actually thought this, and feel free to admit it, because I'm admitting it. I thought his last name was Diamond. It's not. It's Diamond. It's D-I-M-O-N. I never knew that. Yeah, Jamie Diamond. Yeah. Like, you thought it was like, my diamonds leave with you? I thought it was like, you know, a diamond is a girl's best friend. Not like a, a diamond is a girl's best friend. Yes. Yes. No, you were wrong. I mean, it's... I, I, you don't have to be nice, Adam. I know you're struggling to find the words and not like you're a moron, Paul. I understand. I just needed to say it. I'm sure somebody else out there has thought it as well. I can't be alone here. Well, it's okay. I mean, if you turn on like CNBC, like, I don't know, once a year, you'll probably see his name written in front of you. So <laughs> I don't watch CNBC, Adam. I listen to a ton of podcasts. So my ears, I blame my ears, Adam. That's what I, I blame. I, that's understandable. That's understandable. Probably, I probably, when I was pronouncing it earlier, it probably did sound like Diamond as well. So Jamie Diamond, good call. Adam, I'll be honest, I'm pretty ashamed with myself, but uh, we have to move on. Our next article comes from channelfutures.com. 
IT service providers get boot camp and reoccurring revenue growth. The program will become a complete two-day workshop in quarter four of this year. At this year's MSP Summit, there's going to be a special session called Managed Service Accelerator Program, Growing Reoccurring Revenue. It'll be led by MSP expert Lynn, who has had a long career working for more than 30 years as a channel executive. The article goes on to talk about business transformation stages as Lynn sees it, and it's a really interesting read. Yeah, this was uh, this is an article I came across. You know, it's in Channel Futures, and uh, this gentleman Di Costanzo—that's a great last name, Di Costanzo. He uh, was talking a lot about you know organizations making a transition into this reoccurring revenue model, and you saw the Microsofts of the world go there. You saw Cisco shifting. You've seen all the you know VMware, different security vendors. Everyone's out there providing as a service models, right? You have subscription security services from a firewall perspective. You got folks like Zscaler and Cato and Fortinet and Palo Alto Networks, and everybody's out there providing subscription-based services. I think what his point is that managed service providers are also coming in to evaluate, okay, what offerings are we going to deliver to our client base as a reoccurring under a reoccurring model. Quest went through this, you know, back when we built out our managed services capabilities in in early 2000, mainly around security and then kept adding, you know, different features, monitoring, alerting, endpoint protection, sim across the gamut. It's culturally ingrained into us now, but coming from a VAR perspective, coming from a reseller, that transition, that chasm takes a while because you go from large capex purchases you drop ship equipment you collect you get paid you you get your gross margin and then you go hunt the next one and you go to the next refresh cycle it's a different model of okay i gotta create a i gotta create an operational unit that's going to manage this ongoing i gotta get my costs right like how much am i going to charge the customer versus you know what can you know what financially makes sense and he has some good cautionary tales in here some of his bullet items in here around hey if you price you know, your services based on what your competition's doing, that could be a short-lived a short-lived short issue. You got to really evaluate how you want to price these things, which I thought was a great point. Good article, really talks from a business perspective about people making that transition. Not that you have to overcomplicate it, but a lot of it has to do with how people like to pay for stuff and how people like to get paid. So your sales force is definitely going to have a vote and they're going to, you're going to, as you're making a transition, you're going to see how you pay your people and how your partners make money too. So those are some big considerations as you're making a transition to scaling up your MSP practice. And if you want to read the article, it is going to be in the description of this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Adam, anything coming up this week that people should know? Always fun to go through this stuff. I think, you know, from an MSP standpoint and a security standpoint, if anyone has any questions or wants to chat with us, you know, please check out the links below or reach out partners at questsys.com anytime. But no, just hope everyone had a great Labor Day weekend and it's good to be back. And if I might add a couple important things to note in today's podcast. One, pause, listen to people. It's important. And two, it's pronounced Jamie Diamond, not Diamond. Don't walk around thinking it's diamond and be like me. Live a better life. And like Paul, you know, exhibits every week, don't be afraid to look stupid. <laughs> I pride myself on that. That's what I bring to the table every week. You guys, thanks. This is the Incident Report. We'll see you next week. I'll have more dumb questions next week. Adam, have a great week. Appreciate it, everyone. Have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. 
The Incident Report is brought to you by Quest Technology Management. With over 40 years of experience, Quest is a leading technology integrator working seamlessly with your staff and systems to achieve your IT goals. Learn more about everything they do at questsys.com. And if you have questions or suggestions for the podcast, you can always email Adam and myself at the incident report at questsys.com. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time.